0: Completely unironically, one of the guys in the room, white comic book fan type dude, was like, you can't play Superman. You're not white enough.
1: Superman's an alien.
0: He's an alien. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I said. (laughs) That's exactly what I said. And the look on his face was like, it just wouldn't look right.
1: Welcome to Less Than or Equal the podcast about pursuing equality in geekdom by celebrating the diverse and their accomplishments. Today I am joined by Moises Chulan. Moises, welcome. Hi. How are you?
0: I'm I'm good. I'm good. I I like uh, I like giving the primer on on my name um, because it's uh, it's an, a typical name in general and a combination of of syllables that people aren't used to. Uh, the last name is actually half Cantonese and half Spanish, so the double L is pronounced like a Y. Ah, uh, okay. There's I I've I failed miserably in not actually having a pronunciation guide online, so this is this is all on me, not on you. Um, but uh, but yes, I I hope that I am in contention for. Uh, you know, mathematically the most diverse get, diverse guest you've had, at least ethnically.
1: Okay, let's talk about that in a second. But first, who are you?
0: <laughs> I am. I'm a podcaster. I'm a writer. Um, I am a, uh, a a malcontent from the center <laughs> part of Texas.
1: A malcontent. Yes. An ethnically diverse malcontent.
0: Yes, indeed. Multi multi diverse.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about ethnic diversity then, since it's come up so quickly.
0: Uh, it, it comes up pretty quickly. Um, generally, all I need to do is introduce myself or be introduced by name and people um, uh, to to put it in the North Texas parlance uh, from where I grew up. Where, well, where did that name come from? What is that name? <laughs> where are you from? Where are your people? Because uh, I don't know none of those words. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't know those words. Um, my first name, Moises, is the Spanish language equivalent uh, to Moses. I put the diacritical on the E. Um, typically when I sign emails and write it and that kind of thing. Because as a pronunciation guide, it helps people figure out what to do with the vowels because you only add one letter to the word Moses and it becomes radically more confusing. Um, Growing up, I actually had public school teachers effectively rename me, rebrand me, if you will, Mm. Moses, because it's easier. It's just easier. Um, Just like we call Jose Joe and we call Pablo Paul And, uh, and so I got, I got Anglicized, uh, at a very early age. And so people that I, that I went to elementary through high school with know me as Moses. Um, even though I would spell it the right way and at home and family, friends and that kind of thing, I would pronounce it the other way. And, and I, I switched to pronouncing it the correct way in college. And, uh, my, my last name, I wrestled with my whole life where I wanted to change it to my mother's maiden name, which is a a French Huguenot. Extraction. Uh, I wanted to change it to something completely American, and um, and not uh, not stand out, not be made fun of, and not be teased, and that sort of thing. But it's something that I have come to directly and deeply embrace, and uh, that really happened as early as college where it's, it's a big part of who I am. A big part of who I am is that my, my dad is Chinese Cuban. His dad was Cantonese, emigrated from China to Cuba in the early 20th century and met a woman who was part Latin Cuban, part Afro Cuban. And a few decades later, uh, he came over to the U S on the Mariel boat lift, somehow found his way to Dallas, met my uh, white mother who grew up on a farm in Kansas with seven brothers and a sister. And, uh, and here I am so i i have uh, i have lived with something that feels like the log line to an academy award nominated coming of age drama, <laughs> and for a lot of my life i i felt induced to shove that to the background as much as possible and be ashamed of the fact that my dad didn't speak so good of English and wasn't the same kind of assistant coach dad on the baseball team or the basketball team as other guys' dads were. And I would go to the science museum field trip and instead of having a Lunchable, I would have weird ethnic food that for some reason was a lot more appetizing in in look to kids, but they would make fun of it as different and weird and not hermetically sealed in a plastic container. Um, but yeah, my my ethnic identity has been something that I've, I've wrestled with um, for the whole of my life, and I still do to an extent. Something that I told you before we started is that I, I find myself in the world of podcasting, where I, I think it's fair to say I first became known of by people in podcasting as a guy in the general tech podcast sphere, even though the podcasts I was doing weren't really necessarily tech oriented. I was working in tech at the time. I was working for Apple, not any of the fancy programming or industrial design stuff, but the infrastructure and online store stuff that's based here in Austin. Um, And the the thing that really still surprises me is as recently as the last month or so, I still am, have found myself referred to casually, maybe unintentionally, maybe just by omission as, you know, another white male podcaster. And far be it for me to disown my mother, who I love very, very much. Um, but I really do not identify as white. I, you know, part of my ethnic extraction is white. And I guess I just speak so well um, and with such elocution that I pass too well as upper middle class educated white guy who has a college education. But I really don't identify with much of that other than the, I got the advantage of a really great education. I don't come from privilege. My my dad's dad was not part of some ancient Chinese emperor's uh, inheritance line. Shucks. Um, you know, uh, the uh, the struggling Kansas farmers didn't exactly have some big trust fund to bequeath to me. The only reason I got that college education, um, I'm going to make some. I'm, I'll, I'll, who knows? I'll make some enemies. Maybe is because I was not only a, a National Honor Society member, but I am also Hispanic. And on paperwork, that makes me a National Hispanic Scholar. And it just so happens that the year that I was graduating high school, the state of Florida was giving effectively full rides to National Hispanic Scholars. Tuition, out-of-state tuition waiver, uh, stipend for room and board, and a little bit beyond that, Um, which, you know, calculated on paper – it seems like a lot of money. It is a lot of money. Most of it is in out-of-state tuition, waivers and tuition and books and all that kind of crap. Um, and doesn't entirely cover a college education for somebody whose family tried to have a college savings fund. But, uh, you know, I, I grew up the the son of two teachers who are not exactly the best compensated people in the world. Right. And so things happen and people need to eat and... I've I found that it's it's been really interesting being being a, 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 almost a, a secret ethnic guy in the midst of people that are talking about you know race relation and ethnicity stuff as if I to some extent. I'm part of their club Mm -hmm. that doesn't get, you know, why does somebody of this ethnicity just because of the fact that, you know, they're not white, why do they get this advantage over me that I deserve, that I feel like I deserve never understanding their own entitlement complex Um, refusing to acknowledge that it's not just a matter of ethnic minorities getting a voice, but multi-ethnic minorities not getting a voice within their various different groups the white kids never quite thought i was white the asian kids certainly never thought that i was asian and the hispanic kids just like we we were almost segregated away from each other the ones that weren't also in the kinds of honors programs that i was we were effectively forced away from socializing with each other because we never we never had any activities together we would see each other in the lunchroom i would see people in high school that i had come up through kindergarten with that we would see each other and be friendly with each other, but never really spent any time together. So that's a, a long and convoluted way of, uh, of saying that, uh, that, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough. This whole ethnic thing.
1: So why not, why not just pass for white?
0: Uh, it drives me insane. Uh, the, the, idea just, the idea drives me insane and it just, it makes me itch. Mm. Um, you know, passing for white growing up, I was a particular, a particularly complex ethnic mix that not much of anybody knew what to do with in North Texas. Um, and so I was always treated as other, and I was treated by the white kids, whether they acknowledged it or not as like, you know, they allowed me into their circle and it was, you know, whether it was religion where I was being um, pressured by my classmates to be like them and go to Southern Baptist Church with them and do this and do that and be part of this group. It was all about assimilation. And I hate, I, I, I hate uh, two words in their usage regarding you know kids becoming comfortable with their social groups. One is assimilation and the other is tolerance. Teaching tolerance is not teaching acceptance. Mm-hmm. Teaching tolerance is teach the kid with racist white parents that he is supposed to put up with the black kid that he can't stand existing. With the mixed race kid who is, according to his version of the division of the religion he is told that he practices by his parents, that he, he tolerates that, that abomination. There, there were just, it it seems ridiculous to some people that there are those kinds of attitudes that, that would be freely expressed when I was a kid growing up in the, in the mid eighties. Um, but I even see them now and people who live in San Francisco or super, um, progressive areas of the country probably don't believe this stuff really exists, but it really does. And it still happens.
1: Especially in these small, predominantly white areas. Well, there's
0: this whole reclamation of our homeland thing that has particularly taken hold within smaller communities, within predominantly white communities or communities where the white people hold the power, whether they're the majority or not. They'll refer to African-Americans as the minority, but population wise, there are a whole lot more African-Americans there that's evinced in the fact that, you know, the, that, that county of a particular state ends up voting democratic, Mm -hmm. even though it's the white people that hold the local offices like mayor and city council and make all the decisions and all the gentrifying decisions and all the gerrymandering decisions. And we don't want to acknowledge that there are pockets of apartheid all over the United States because, well, we dealt with that what 60 years ago right. 50 years
1: ago yeah that was you in know. the 60s over in yeah yeah we did that yeah we covered all of that
0: but the notion of assimilation is is the thing that really particularly rankles me because it it would come from both sides it would be you know that that's you, you know that that my uh hispanic culture and heritage was weird and different and unacceptable to the white kids or my Asian uh, stuff, you know, I wasn't allowed to celebrate the Lunar New Year because I wasn't really Asian. Um, Yeah. I mean, there were, there were Asian kids that just treated me like I didn't exist or that I was, I was like a a mongrel um, that, that was beneath their, uh, their consideration that I was an underclass. Um, You know, racial purity is something that is not exclusive to white people by far there were people that when I told them my grandmother was black looked at me like I had just signed my own death certificate. And it was, it it was, it was really weird. It was really bizarre where I would hang out at uh, when I was 14. Um, this is a whole other story. I, I plugged a hard drive cable in backwards and fried my computer. Oh no. Yeah. Cause you could do that back in the days of IDE cables. And, um, my mom, knowing that I had taken the SAT in seventh grade, because, hey, I was part of one of those overachieving generations. That was really about all that I needed to get admitted to a local community college. And the computer lab manager at the middle school where she was teaching reading was teaching an A-plus certification course that summer. So my mom got me signed up for this class and I took this class and I got A-plus certified in computer repair at age 14. And so my summer job was working at a neighborhood computer shop that opened up that was run by uh, by a black guy. Most of the the people who would work part-time for him or hang out were, uh, were black, were friends of his, family friends of his, or kids of his. And I felt radically more at home there than I had at school for seven years, where I was surrounded by white people. And I was constantly trying to fit in. I was constantly trying to adapt to their slang, adapt to the fact that they thought that it was weird that I spoke Spanish, which ended up being a uh, a hilarious, uh, quote-unquote, unfair advantage, where there were kids that actively would, would, uh, would give me crap for the fact that I was taking Spanish. And yeah, there were a lot of the fundamentals that I had beyond down, but in terms of fine grammar and writing academically in Spanish, that was something I didn't have any background in. I had conversational at home Spanish Mm -hmm. and it was Cuban Spanish. And that's not exactly the slang and the exact word usage that you get a lot of in Texas. Um, there's a, there's an anecdote that I tell regarding, um, the, the meaning of different words, uh, where there is a phrase that you can say that in Cuban Spanish means I'm going to go catch the bus. And in Mexican Spanish could very directly be taken as I'm going to go do something indecent with a baby. Oh no. Yeah. Just because the two words mean different things in slang and those kinds of differences were things that I, I would use that, that verb that are like, I'm going to go catch the bus. I'm going to go grab this. I'm going to go get this, uh, that in Mexican Spanish is I'm going to go get with this. Um, and I would get weird looks. And I didn't get it until I I uh I I said something that my Spanish teacher thought was indecent. Um and I had no idea, just no clue. And it, it was things like that that other kids other kids just saw it as me getting an easy grade. And on top of that, being in the enriched honors program, everything was hyper competitive even before you got to high school and everything became about GPA and being top of the class and getting into Caltech or whatever. And if if anything, I felt I felt very hectored in by the fact that on the one hand I was never going to fit in, and on the other hand I didn't really want to fit in.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and uh, going to college was was an opportunity to make a bunch of mistakes, like we all do, make a lot of questionable choices, oh, sleep yes. with a lot of people that I should not have slept with. Um. And just, um, in general, figure out who the hell I am. And it's something that I, um, I still, I, I'm still trying to figure it out when I find myself experiencing similar kinds of things where, I mean, you know, don't get me wrong, I don't hate white people, Aileen. I'm glad, thank you. I don't hate them. I don't hate them. Um, but it, the, the knee-jerk reaction... When I seem to come at this, you know, the white tech perspective is something that I'm really surprised um, is is kind of the predominant voice because it's way more than just, you know, middle class, upper middle class white people that are using these various forms of technology. And like with this Apple Watch stuff, the stories about it doesn't work well on tattooed wrists. I don't find that surprising at all. Right. And I find it hilarious because when I worked at Apple and was part of the launch team for the Mexico store, the Apple online store for Mexico, there were translation errors all over it. Mm-hmm. And the entire team putting it together in secret, just like everything at the time at Apple was super ultra secret, super ultra small team. It was all white people who did not speak Spanish and the they brought in myself and a couple of other people who spoke Spanish at some of the later phases of things to where I, I, I hear people rant about, well, why isn't Apple Pay in this country or that country? We already have chip and pin here. We already have chip and pin there. Why did it go to the United States first? It's because Apple is a fundamentally ethnocentric white American company in a lot of ways, yeah. as diverse as they uh, promote themselves as, as diverse of interest there is in their products a few days before that store launched, I said, we're not set up to do temporary authorizations on credit cards for the Mexico store, are we? And I got a bunch of looks like, why is that a problem? And I said, because that's not how Mexican cards work. Wait a minute. Is this the first time this has been brought to your attention? Yes. Uh, It'll be fine. It'll be fine. And in the first few weeks, one of the things that I was tasked with was cleaning up a series of issues where people had ordered Mac Pros and had thousands of dollars gone from their debit cards that had been authorized three and four and five times. Oh, no. And it was, it was basically translating an entire culture to a company that, to that point, was very much expectant that the rest of the world was going to conform around the version of business that Apple was used to doing.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And that was something that for me was was fundamentally, you know, crushing in my perspective on, on this company that over the first year or so that I had been working for them, I had really come to admire and drink the Kool-Aid on in a lot of respects. Something that they did not get and that it seems like they're doing a better job of from the outside, but that I don't know if they are, is understanding that I'm sorry, but the rest of the world is not is not exactly the same and and doesn't have the same sorts of checks and balances as the United States.
1: Yeah, and well, part of the thing too is like Apple has pretty much the best diversity numbers of any tech company as far as yeah. you know their their balance of people. I was actually looking at this um, for a talk I proposed, and um, one they're still not doing that great, and two they don't break it down between Apple retail and Apple. Nope. You know, like the Austin and California campuses. Yeah. And I want to know how many people are actually working on products and how many of them are white dudes who don't have to think about people with full sleeves wearing their their wearable product yeah. or even people with darker skin tones.
0: Anecdotally, there are a lot of white dudes who wear Skechers and New Balance tennis shoes and cargo shorts. Um. In in those kinds of positions, yeah. Um, from from anecdotal knowledge going back to 2010 to the present, and the vast majority of those ethnic diversity numbers come from retail mm-hmm. and the massive call center operations they have. Now, to be fair, they don't count the outsourced uh, third party contract call centers that they work with. Um, but I can tell you from working at the Austin campus. I was hired on with the group um, that, was, that was brought in to handle the iPhone launch. There, there was a small pocket of Hispanic folks, um, not many that were, that were directly supporting Spanish language customers, but that grew in a big way, not, not exactly when Mexico started up, but when they started up the Brazil store and needed people who spoke both Spanish and Portuguese. And they could hire up the, you know, the, the subculture of Brazilian expats who live in Austin, um, to, to, uh, to man some of those projects. Um, but I, yeah, if, if you look at the company, they pride themselves in having small project teams. And I'm not saying that those teams are not diverse at all or all male, but it would be really great, even if it were just back channel chatter to know that there are a few women that are in these highly guarded test lab rooms working on some of these things. The, the vast majority of high-profile people that I know of working at Apple are male, first of all. You know, when I got hired in, they had just hired a new VP of sales who is, I guess, no longer there, um, who, who came from Delta Airlines. And uh, she she grew up in Fort Worth and she had big hair and she had rings and she was very southern and as progressive and inclusive of a company as Apple is in many respects. And I don't mean to be this, you know, this this turning into me assailing Apple's diversity figures. I really did still feel fundamentally um, wrapped inside of a similar kind of cocoon that I do around most of the white culture that runs most of the big businesses in the world. I, you know, there, there, there are parts of the stuff that I did at Apple that I still respect the NDA, even though I don't ever presume that I would ever work for Apple again. Um, in fact, you know, I've said things on other podcasts that would probably preclude, make, that. preclude that just, just on a basis of, um, You know, like when they decided to drop the price of the original iPhone $200, Steve Jobs really did not tell anybody, including his VP of sales. Uh, I think basically no one knew but Tim Cook and Phil Schiller uh, until he went on stage and dropped the bomb because nobody was prepared for that. And it, it was a weird, crazy, chaotic time. And as much... As much crap even as I've, uh, I don't know, theoretically given them just now or that people give them about everything from overseas labor to inclusiveness. Um, I feel like they are – they, when I was there and since I've not been there, they really have made an effort. Good. Um, especially under Tim Cook. And under Tim Cook includes some of the time that I was there. Um, I left before – Steve Jobs uh retired. But for all intents and purposes, the day-to-day, a lot of that stuff, as I understood it, a lot of that had been running under Tim Cook and he had been kind of ramping up to it for some time. Mm-hmm. And we're only just, you know, after a few years of his tenure as CEO, seeing some of his changes with regard to pulling the curtain back a bit. Um Working as part of philanthropic uh, programs, throwing Apple's weight around for progressive causes that really make a difference.
1: Yeah, I've been I've been impressed and I'm you know, I'm I'm an Apple aficionado like I have. Yeah, my. MacBook Pro. I've got my Thunderbolt display. I have an Apple Watch. Hey, I've got I've got a MacBook Pro. I've got a Thunderbolt display. I don't have a watch. Yeah, well, I needed it. If for... <laughs> you have one of those
0: uh, laying around, I, I mean, don't.
1: I don't. I'll,
0: um, uh, you know, I'll take it. But I'm, um, you know, the watch. The watch. I don't know about that's a that's a whole other thing. This isn't a tech podcast, so I, I don't want to derail
1: you. Yeah, uh, the the watch um I needed for work. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have purchased one. So, work. Yeah. I know. Stupid mm. job. No, it's you a know, good work. job. I'm not going to say stupid job, but <laughs> um, and and I want to be clear because when I asked you why not pass, like I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, Aline wants people of color to act like they're white. That no, I mean, that's
0: that's what you told me before we started. In fact, you said I, you know I'd like to convince you of this viewpoint that that is what I would prefer that you do. I think that's the best way yes. for you to live your life
1: because I totally feel like I get to dictate mm-hmm. to you how you proceed yes. and 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 all of that. But like, um, I think it's highly offensive for people to ask that seriously. It's denying your cultural background. Like I'm, I'm white, like I'm super white. I've had genetic testing, like the little $99, 23 and me kits. Um, I've done that. And my ancestry is mostly from England. I've got like 2% native American, you know, like I'm a white person. Um, but I think it's such a shame that white culture pushes people who have these rich backgrounds like pushes them into de- like hiding that or denying it or not, not being able to acknowledge how amazing it is. that like, like your, your grandparent went from China to Cuba. How cool is that? And what was that like? You know, and, and
0: I, I wish I'd uh, gotten my dad to tell me the story on tape before he had a massive stroke in 2008. Uh Yeah. It's uh, in, in many ways having pieces of that story and, you know, I've got two half sisters that, that were, uh, that were born in Cuba before my dad left and, you know, and found my mom and I've tried to connect more with them, but you know, they've both got kids. One of them is a, you know, has a, has a clubbing, uh, 24 year old that, you know, is, uh, the, the, um, I don't feel like I'm, I'm overreaching in, in, um, in, in oversharing their private information uh, because uh, Odalis would be the first one to tell me, oh, embarrass her, embarrass her. She deserves it. Um, you know, her, her 24-year-old daughter is the type that just disappears for days at a time and uh, showed up one day after having had breast augmentation surgery that she didn't tell her mother about. So, you know, she's got a bunch of life stuff to deal with. Surprise. And uh, and and I can't I can't necessarily go, hey, I'm going to come visit Miami and uh, see what, if anything, you can remember from stories that dad told uh, or that, you know, other relatives know. Um, But with with the reopening of relations with Cuba, I, you know, I theoretically could have gone before now as a first generation um, child of an immigrant um, going through a gigantic amount of paperwork. I could have done that. I'm more eager to do it now, but it's still something that, that kind of petrifies me to an extent. There's, I've been, I've been so cut off from it, completely cut off from it, not in a laziness well, just not wanting to connect with my family kind of way that it's just really intimidating. I mean, my Spanish, I don't think my Spanish is, is as good as it was probably five years ago Mm -hmm. because I don't, I don't hardly use it. Um, I would mostly use it talking to my dad, and I still talk to my dad, and he understands what i'm saying, but because of language aphasia i can't understand anything that comes out of his mouth right um you know my 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 other sister uh yoseline and I uh joke with him that you know when when he talks it's all chinese to us oh jeez um because it's it's all i mean it's all it's all it's it's as close to the Chinese that he remembered his dad teaching him um in terms of just being completely foreign to us. Um, but there's, yeah, there's, there's this really bizarre encouragement of, well, but you're American now. Um, and now you're an American, you're not Cuban anymore. And, uh, in college I dated a super conservative Catholic white girl who's very proudly Irish family. Uh, her dad had a great series of lectures about you know what a republic is and how great america is and how um this is my dad's country now not cuba and you know he you know it's it's disgraceful that he retains his cuban citizenship and i said if he didn't retain his cuban citizenship he wouldn't have been able to go back and visit relatives as they were dying including his mother so you know go jump off a cliff on fire buddy um there, 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 is, there is neo-imperialism that comes through in the most bizarre ways where uh, I have more than a few English friends who identify as British and reject any notion of being European. And I'm like, but you're from the continent of Europe. No, but I'm from the UK. I'm British. And the moment... The moment I dance anywhere near the, uh, the, you know, mentioning there being some sort of latent passive racism in that sentiment that's been passed on to them by their, uh, you know, their, their parents, the people they were raised by, they immediately bristles. I'm not racist. I'm not racist at all. Okay, well, then why do you have to so clearly delineate yourself from those filthy continental Europeans? What's so wrong with them? You have a whole lot more in common genetically with, you know, a bunch of those German and French people than you apparently think that you do. If we're just talking about straight up DNA. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it's not localized to the United States, that white culture is something that it um, it barely even deserves the label of white. Because it. It's transcended to a mindset of the actual, you know, genetically white, white people like yourself, <laughs> lovely people, wonderful people.
1: <laughs> and some of us,
0: the The enforcement of some sort of genetic, political and world outlook homogenization that is, um, I, I mean, if it were to be assigned a color, it would have to be more beigey brown <laughs> like me and like a bunch of other people. that are like six different ethnicities. Um, so I, it, it, it's, you know, to, to call it, um, to call it the, you know, people living inside the beige box, I mm-hmm. guess, uh, they would be offended at that because damn it, they're white. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, it, it's this, it's this weird catch 22, no matter where I look, you know, I went to Florida state and there were a bunch of Miami Cubans who were like, you're Cuban. You don't sound Cuban. Well, cause I don't talk like a Miami Cuban. Because to them, that's the only Cuban that there is. Right. And they haven't heard anybody who came off of the island anytime in the last 30 years. All of their parents and relatives left in the 50s and 60s and 70s. And were part of the whiter upper class, middle class, upper middle class, moneyed classes that took whatever economy Cuba had, uh, you know, with them. And like completely aside from politics, there are people that just, it's, it's like they don't recognize that, that there is that division. Mm-hmm. That there has to be some single definition of one particular ethnicity. You know, like the, the Spawn on Me guys, I love that one of them is liberal and one of them is conservative. Mm-hmm. And that they have so much common ground. And what I hate is that, that kind of Conversation is not something that we see across political uh, divides, across ethnic divides. Um, It's it's just kind of crazy making. Like just the amount of effort that I have gone through to get Khalif credentialed for E3. I don't want to say, well, if he was white. Right. But there is this kind of chummy boys club atmosphere to the white gamer dudes. Out there, a bunch of whom they've had on spawn on me, that they all scratch each other's backs and watch out for each other, and that is just not something that is available to him. And so he and I are like dressed up in ninja gear, trying to sneak over the gate, <laughs> and and like and and get in on the inside. And I, I've I've been using every contact and relationship and and whatever that I have to crack inside that traditional white generic space. And that um, whether you're looking at the Hugos and that controversy, whether you're looking at the fact that as many attempts as series like Star Trek have gone to to try to diversify things, um, there's so much further to go. Mm-hmm. And there are people who are ostensibly on the progressive let's improve on things side of things that are saying, uh, well, but I would prefer it if progress were more in the shape of me and what I need and what I want. You know, that, that was, that was a great first question because it opened this like (laughs) huge box or like Felix's bag of tricks of, (laughs) of crazy stuff that just, it, if there, if there, if there's a, I I keep rambling, but if there's a single, if there's a single thing that amazes me the most about all of this, it's that we just kind of quiet down some of the blaringly loudest, craziest parts of it to me on a constant basis. No, 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 we're going to take care of that 40 years from now. We're going to focus on this thing or that thing. That's, that's, that's what keeps getting at me that there are people that are all for equal inclusion and representation and blah, 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 blah on paper. And they attach a bunch of adjectives and a bunch of talking points to something you know, like uh like we're like we're going to war in Iraq. And yep. you just need to win the hearts and minds. And in terms of what's actually produced from that action, whether politically, whether in gaming, whether in movies, whether in TV, whatever, we still end up with Black Widow in an Avengers movie where she is mostly whose girlfriend is she going to be when she's not punching somebody. Yep. What? Yeah. Come on. But it's great that she's punching people <laughs> and that gets her agency. And okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay but she's like a quarter of a Joss Whedon character. Yep. And I don't think it's entirely Joss Whedon's
1: fault at all, which is a s it's astounding because Agents of Shield, oh my gosh, it's one of which,
0: which he he had way more control over.
1: Yeah. Oh, but yeah, Agents of Shield is is like this amazing, diverse. Like I saw uh, before this season started, I saw this like screen grab, you know, press shot that they'd done, and it was like yeah. woman, woman, person of color, person of color, who's also a woman, white dude, white dude, and I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing, this is this is yeah. phenomenal. And then I'm hearing all this this stuff about Black Widow in the event, and I just I want to pull my hair out.
0: If anything. I, w- I would, you know, as we're recording this Avengers weekend, 2015, I would caution reading too much into the perspective that a number of people are just forcing on things. The The press tour thing is the stupidest, worst thing that possibly could have happened mm-hmm. for perception of the movie itself, because it's it's undoubtedly going to color it. It's going to undoubtedly cover it that you had Hawkeye and Captain America giving interviews and calling Black Widow a slut. Yep. no. No way to slice it other than, sorry, sorry, guys, the ship has sailed. It's out to sea. It's never going back into dry dock. Um, the movie itself was not colored for me in that way because I had not paid any attention to any of that stuff when I saw the press screening that I did at the beginning of the week. After the fact, it reinforced some things that were kind of bothering me in the back of my head. Mm that I was really hoping that there would be more meat to the character. Though behind the scenes, I know that the movie's third act fundamentally changed due to Scarlett Johansson's pregnancy. She was going to have a much more active role. She was going to have a, she she does have an active role, don't get me wrong. But they basically had to change the script in the last third of the movie because they were no longer going to be able to have, have her for certain things. Um, and I I don't think that that's unfair in a, in a gender bias kind of a way, because well, you contractually obligated to make a movie and you're physically going to put a pregnancy at risk if you're going to do some of these crazy physical stuff. Well, I, okay, I guess they need to rewrite around that. I don't see that as malicious in any respect. Um, but other parts of just the way that Black Widow's character has been uh, put together is something that. I think there would be more meat to that character. I think there would be more focus on that character if the creative voice behind it hadn't also been juggling a bunch of other things and a bunch of other uh, people to keep happy in a very large, very multi-part machine that those Marvel movies are. If there were more women in it from the outset, like there were Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., it's something that I could see being much more the kind of ensemble thing that that show is. And to to touch back on something that that you were saying about just the overall lineup, there were a lot of people I know that did not find the first season of that show very compelling.
1: The first Uh, half I thought was horrible.
0: Yeah, Yeah. it was, it just did not work, did not gel, did not find its voice. But hey, I can say that about Star Trek The Next Generation. And it's probably unpopular, but even more so now, I feel that about big chunks of the one season of Firefly that we got uh, that just, I, you know, okay, Chinese is a big language. Where are all the Asians? Um, There were a lot of things that just fundamentally didn't didn't work for me that that worked just fine for a bunch of uh, race blind uh, friends of mine who were big, big, big fans of it. Don't get me wrong. There's a lot that I like in it. But but with Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., comic book fan friends of mine who were really kind of nonplussed about the first half of that season of S.H.I.E.L.D. and not that plussed about the first half of the first season of Arrow came back around on Arrow which is effectively Batman in a hoodie with bow and arrow with some sexy, uh, skin tight costume women in his supporting cast, along with a bunch of dudes. They've latched onto that, but they were like, no, I'm just not feeling agents of shield. Because I guess they, they aren't excited about a Chinese-American woman in her 20s as a lead character in it, albeit the role was written incredibly annoyingly. And I've only come to actually like that character in the second season of the show. I didn't even like her that much in the tail end of the first season when things improved a lot. <sighs> but as a character, I think Sky is a lot more interesting now. Yeah, I agree. Way, 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 way more interesting than the standard white male action hero Grant Ward character that seemed to be positioned as, well, this is your Han Solo badass and turned out to be something else. I think he's interesting in the respect that he's being used. Mm-hmm. And in fact, when they, they put up that first cast photo, he looked so uncannily like one of my roommates from when I was in, in acting school at Florida State. I was like, wow, they basically you know cast this dude. And then sure enough, late in the first season, my old com- college roommate... Is on it as shield guard number seven and gets <laughs> decked in the face by Bill Paxton. Oh no! Um, but but I I was I was thinking all along. I was like, well, you know, the sad thing is he's just going to be the handsome, badass martial artist, you know, lethal super agent dude, and that they subverted those expectations. Eventually, I really enjoyed, and I think if they had had again less puppet strings on them. And, you know, if they had been forced into like a 10-episode BBC-type season, Mm -hmm. I think they would have been able to tighten things up a lot if there weren't enough – if there weren't the interconnecting pieces that they had to tie into movies and that sort of thing, I think they could have done more with it. Um, I have this recurring argument whether it is, "Mm, the Human Torch is black. I don't like that. But I'm not racist. They're the racist people, but I just want to see the comic book on screen. I just want to see – what I saw in the comic book on screen. Well, who's to say that you're not seeing that for, you know, want of the person's skin color and the fact that one or the other of the Storm siblings is adopted. And it turns out it's the white one that's adopted (laughs) Um, because Dr. Storm in the new Fantastic Four movie played by Reg Kathy is black. So why is it such a big deal that the super scientist whose experiment goes awry is a black guy because I really have trouble picking out one time that it wasn't a white guy.
1: Yeah. it. What gets to me is these people like bellyaching about, about things like that, these casting decisions based on someone's skin color. And I think about all of the, all of the things we miss out on because, um, because we're so, like, he has to look like the white-skinned comic book character. He can't yeah. be a person of color. And it's like, so would you rather see an actor not suited for the role and then complain because you didn't believe that he could pull that off or that he didn't fit the character? Right? Like, there's there's always going to be something. Yeah, And why are you getting hung up on skin color? Just the same as, you know, I don't know.
0: I was in college, in college theater, I was doing, um, some sketch comedy stuff and we were building like a, like a a Superman satire sketch. And I was like, well, so-and-so's in this and -and so-and-so's in this. And, you know, I could play the Superman part and completely unironically, one of the guys in the room, white comic book fan type dude was like, you can't play Superman. You're not white enough. Superman's an alien. He's an alien. Yeah. Yeah. That's exactly what I said. That's exactly what I said. And the look on his face was like, it just wouldn't look right. And thankfully, this guy was, you know, he was ostracized by everybody. And they were like, you should apologize. And he apologized. He didn't mean it. uh, But he was forced to apologize uh, via shaming. Um, But he just he, he couldn't get it through his head that Superman doesn't look like George Reeves or Christopher Reeve. Necessarily. I love that the the guy who's about to take over the main Superman comic, Gene Len Yang, is the first Asian to ever write a Superman book. or the, the Superman book. That's awesome. The other Superman comic, Action Comics, for about a year and a half now, has been written by Korean-American Greg Pak. Who also wrote one of the great Hulk stories of all time. So... Starting this summer, the two main Superman books are both being written by Asian Americans.
1: Good. Yay.
0: Who have, in various contexts, felt like aliens in their own country for much of their lives. And a bunch of white friends of mine, fans of comic books, are like, I don't see what the big deal is. Jim Lee has drawn, like, every character on the face of the earth, and he's Korean. That is not the same as there having never been a writer of Asian descent on either main Superman book and the fact that they just don't get how it's a big deal and that it, that it rolls into whatever horrible crypto fascist hole that created the notion of, of, um, affirmative action as a negative thing,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: probably the same Jack who figured out what to put in the water to convince people the word feminism is a bad thing. (laughs) Uh, or that equal rights are a bad thing or other things that are that are good and just and reasonable are bad things. that are only going to corrupt and water down someone's culture. I, you know, I I have people who will say like the human torch thing. They'll be like, well, but you know, he, he had blonde hair and blue eyes and I grew up and he was the only hero I knew of with blonde hair and blue eyes. And it was like, oh, Captain America had blonde right. hair and blue eyes. And like six other dudes did too, but I guess, I guess my <laughs> my half white eyes didn't read as well as I thought they did, um, and I'm like, well, what about the kid who grew up literally never seeing a black character in any comic book except for somebody whose origin was tied into using drugs, getting in jail, or doing something otherwise criminal? What about that person
1: Well they don't matter well they don't matter yeah
0: they're not me yeah
1: for a species that only can survive with other people like it's pretty hard to make it out there on your own. We do an amazing job at yeah. lacking empathy mm-hmm. and um, st- stopping to think like about other people.
0: I, I wish that the mayor of a major American city would institute something that literally costs uh no money other than what you would otherwise spend on you know, a commercial campaign on local TV that they'd be spending anyway. And instead of do something like a war on drugs or a war on, you know, texting while driving, which, you know, good luck winning hearts and minds on that. um, Do a campaign for the friendly wave. You know, we have all come to that four way stop where nobody knows what the hell to do be the person who offers the right of way to somebody else doesn't matter if you have it doesn't matter if you're if completely objectively you have the universal right of way just every once in a while give up the second and a half and that pays it forward and concatenates to everybody on the planet if we do enough of that if we do enough of actually just watching out for each other and being decent to each other in in small ways Yeah. Okay. You can't track that with, uh, with something that Google makes or with your Apple watch or any of that kind of crap. But I, I'm, I'm amazed that we, we, in all of our abilities to reshape and destroy the planet (laughs) that we can't, we can't enact something small like that, that just makes life better for everybody. Um, that everybody is focused on how they're going to get their piece knowing that somebody else is not going to get theirs just uh, that that more than anything drives me off the wall no uh i want your show to get canceled because my favorite show is the best one on tv and it deserves to stay um no your indication that you know why can't dr strange be part asian or part hispanic or part asian and hispanic well you're just saying that because you're asian and hispanic well that's part of why i'm saying it that's part of why i've said that about a variety of protagonists across all of fiction since I was a kid, Mm -hmm. because there's no good reason why they can't be that. Uh, There's a, a creative writing thing that I've been working on to some extent for about 20 years that started as a a pen and paper RPG that I would play with, with friends that was based mostly on my knowledge of Japanese role-playing game, video games like Final Fantasy, one of my friends' pseudo-knowledge of Dungeons & Dragons tropes <laughs> and, and uh, you know, a combination of, of that kind of thing. And it was much less really based on what came out when we rolled the dice or, you know, something along those lines, um, but much more like improvisational radio theater. And I was the dungeon master. I was the one telling the story. And the characters that my friends were playing as, the one who was, if there was a main character to the story that we were telling, he was the son of a king. The king was assassinated. He was an adult now, and he was going to exact righteous vengeance for his assassinated father, the king, and ascend the throne. Boring. Uh, another guy was uh, like a, a, a really, a really poor ripoff of Elric of Melnibone, the 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 white skinned albino elf you know dark lord from the michael Moorcock books uh who you know was just you know into it for you know conquering and uh you know in in the comics being 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 a, a, a little bit of of uh, almost like a namor the submariner super arrogant you know guy who punched first and let his entitlement follow it <laughs> um and a couple other guys who you know were were in and out and in and out and um late in high school, I took a bunch of this story that we'd put together and outlines and notes that I'd taken. And I, I, I kind of compiled it into a cohesive narrative that I could just write as written fiction as a book or books or whatever at the ripe old age of, I don't know, 17. Uh, this, yeah, I, th- I think it was about a year after I broke my back. Oh yeah. I broke my back when I was 16. What? How? Uh, I was a gymnast. Uh, uh, I did, I hadn't been a gymnast my whole life. Um, kind of kind of like a comic book origin story. I could not get my mom to let me play football like all of the guys did. And like, you know, girls liked football players. Right. It was, you know, Texas, it's a thing. I'd never played football. I wasn't really particularly good at football. I was really much better at baseball. Um, and so I wasn't going to get into football. I didn't want to take gym because only, only people without a sport took gym. And then, um, Uh, who knows, one of them might hear this. Uh, uh, So I I won't particularly uh, identify them. But a girl that I had had a crush on for like three years um, told me, oh, hey, we're going to do gymnastics. You should do gymnastics. You've done some like dance theater stuff, whatever. And I was instantly very interested in doing this, not because it was gymnastics and we were all going to be wearing Lycra, but because, hey, great excuse to hang out with this girl that I have a crush on who's amazing and brilliant and who I would sit a few seats behind in like every class that we had because our names came sequentially in the alphabet right behind each other. It was, you know, it was, it was almost like Nickelodeon's Doug. It was ridiculous. Um, So I got into gymnastics. I, like a true nerd, completely dedicated my, my flabby, untoned, you know, non-athletic self to it. And over the first semester or so, got myself to the I was I was this chiseled um like Wolverine with his shirt off looking 15-year-old behemoth. Um and at first the girls would be like oh ha ha I was like the comic relief. I was I was nerdy Peter Parker uh attached to his his Bunsen burner and um and and microscope. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly when you know in the hotter months the guys would work out with their shirts off a certain contingent of the girls team would just sit and watch. Um, I wasn't processing this at the time. Didn't quite get it, but, uh, but yeah, I was, I was a piece of meat and, uh, and eventually I figured out that in particular, there were, there were, there were girls on the team that were specifically, uh, watching me and slacking off from their bar routines or whatever it was. And, uh, that was kind of cool. And it was, it was like, I had been bitten by a radioactive spider and sure enough, around this time, I actually got bitten by a by a spider by a spider on my hand, and it, sw- it swelled up for about a day and a half and so i was i I, I was a big spider man fan at the time, and I was like, "Well, I mean, this is just proof it's <laughs> it was destined to be like this now i 'm a superhero and and uh, and all of these girls are are into me and uh, and this is kind of awesome, but um you know I, I was still awkward and, and nerdy." And one day on the floor exercise, I was going from one jumping front flip into another. And in the tap off the ground in between the two flips, uh, two of my vertebrae hit each other ah. and one of them broke. And I blacked out and went face down on the mat. And uh there was a there was a loud crack, but people weren't really necessarily sure that the noise was associated with me, because things in a gym, oh, you know, for gymnastics, you know, rings clang onto metal, that kind of thing happens. And um, as as all stupid uh, high school ostracization um, stories go, there was a certain contingent of people that didn't see what happened and thought that I was just faking an injury, and so that story started to spread like a game of telephone. And then I tried to go to school the next day, and I fell up the stairs to get on the bus. I fell up the stairs when I got to school to get to my first class. Um, I was in agonizing pain and my mom had to come and get me, took me to the orthopedist, did a bunch of scans. Yeah, so he's got a shattered vertebrae. Mm. So I was prescribed massive painkillers mm-hmm. and I was sent to school in a wheelchair. And the wheelchair, of course, was just a cry for attention. I could walk just fine. Yes, theoretically, I could walk, but it caused me agonizing, insane amounts of pain. And it just, it, it wasn't even a matter of like uh, muscular damage. It was that structurally everything one, was of wonky. my, yeah, one of my lumbar vertebrae was not serving its structural purpose. And the only reason that I could walk at all was probably because, you know, I was, you know, again, not to paint a mental picture. I mean, this is not that kind of show, but I was, I was, I was a glistening with sweat. <laughs> uh, like they would have been thrilled to have me in Magic Mike uh, kind of, you know, beef, uh, beef on top of beef. Uh, I'm, I'm still amazed that I ever looked like that. <laughs> um, that's the only reason that I could even stand up. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just, it was just awful. And, uh, you know, I would fall asleep in classes and, um, I, I was, at the time thinking that I was going to teach boys gymnastics I taught boys gymnastics classes at the gym where our high school team and another high school team uh practiced after practice I would stay and and I would teach these classes and there were there were these kids and uh they were rambunctious and I taught them discipline and focus and some of them had single parent households and a lot of lack of focus and were starting into puberty and being disruptive and me breaking my back was the end of that. My mom quit my job for me because I couldn't exactly lift kids. Mm -hmm. Um, even though I could, you know, sit and supervise them and that kind of thing. And, um, I, I got to very strongly reconsider what I was going to do. I was going to, I was going to coach gymnastics. I was going to stay in the town that I grew up in. I was going to, um, you know, act in local theater. I was going to you know, do, do other stuff. Um, and I, I went on homebound education for a long period of time that, um, that included a, a major historical event in American history that I got to watch live on cable news. And that was Columbine. And so when I came back, there were 12 different urban legends about me, about how I'd threatened to bring a gun to school and been expelled I'd gotten into a fight. I had gotten drunk and crashed a car. There were all kinds of things that were ten times more interesting than my life had ever been. Um, that were some, you know, some, some renegade folk hero's life, not mine. And coming back from that, I went back to some things that I had been into in middle school. I had, I had still loved theater, but I hadn't done any theater since getting to high school because my after-school activity was gymnastics. And I wanted to get back into um, theater. I was on a cane, but I could, you know, I could probably manage if there was a right part in a right thing. Uh, I wanted to get back into competitive speech and debate. I wanted to get back into creative writing. I had had loads of time and some of that loads of time was unearthing some of the pen and paper role playing game stuff that we had that we had played with, and we actually we actually played over the phone. We didn't play in person. That's a, a big part of the D and D experience that was very different from this. That anybody who knows D and D would uh, find very radically weird about this. Um, but while I was on homebound education, my only real connection to people inside of school was. Uh, um, are you familiar with landline telephones, mm-hmm. Aileen? Okay, uh, landline telephones, listeners, um, mm-hmm. were technology that uh, that preceded the dawn of time. Mm-hmm. And so we would be on these phones where, you know, mom would pick up and be like, oh, I need to call the store or something. Mom, get off the phone. I'm 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 uh, my friends are slaying a dragon. Um,
1: Did you have the thing where your modem line was also the landline and you'd be on the Internet? Oh, yeah. Your parent would pick up the phone and it would boot you and then they'd make their call and you'd be all angry waiting for them to make their call. And then you'd finally get to dial in again. Yeah, I had that, too.
0: There's a lot of Diablo loot that I uh, that I oh. that I lost irretrievably. Oh,
1: those poor pixels!
0: In, yeah, in a in a game that I uh, you know I I I do not still have any of those saves, and I haven't played that game in over 15 years. <laughs> so I'm I'm obviously really broken. I can up about tell, it. yeah. But that 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 imaginative component to to things was something that it was a big deal for me then, and it was something that while I, I was, I was effectively sort of under house arrest, sort of like, it was almost, it was almost like I was, I was, I was disconnected from the reality that everybody around me uh, was part of for so long that I got really introspective about a lot of things. And I realized that a lot of the non-player characters that I created, almost all of them actually were white Hmm. and bothered me. It Mm -hmm. bothered me deeply uh, that, that I had done this and I was trying to figure out why I didn't insert things that represented more of who I was and who other people, you know, people I was friends with, why weren't there more Asians? Um, you know, at the very least I didn't make the Asian characters that were in it, you know, martial artists or like ramen shop owners or something. Um, so at the very least I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, you know, devolve completely into the weird kind of stereotyping all around me.
1: Tropes, right?
0: Yeah. And I, I, started thinking a lot about that whole world of things. And about a year later, I took a big chunk of the summer where I would spend some of my days just reworking different concepts and actively thinking about making it something that would work as a narrative. And I didn't grow up reading all of these different fantasy books because I generally found myself pretty uninterested in them because they were all about a bunch of white people going to beat up the other white dude. And um, I liked The Hobbit. I liked it and found it more engaging than the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which I didn't actually read all the way through until years later when I was in college. Um, I enjoyed those movies more than I did the books, um, which is sacrilege to massive Tolkien heads. I I knew uh, the Elric stories more from derivative ripoff works than I did the actual Elric books written by Michael Moorcock, which I even through high school hadn't read one of, I read one, I I read the first one of them in college at some point. Um, but a lot of it was, I felt, I felt pretty disconnected from a lot of of fantasy fiction and I started gender flipping, race flipping a bunch of people. The majority of the women in this fantasy universe were far, uh, far between and few, Mm -hmm. um, and mostly love interests, uh, you know, sex robots that cast white magic. Um, basically like they are in most uh, fantasy fiction and video games and that sort of thing. Um, but I started remolding them more around a couple of the, the main characters in final fantasy six originally known as final fantasy three, um, which I had played and loved at that point um, because I had actually had that example. And as I got into college, I started getting really itchy about this main character That was the, you know, the totally stereotypical, archetypical, you know, son of privilege who's going to avenge his father's death. (sighs) Sorry. Sorry. Um, (laughs) uh, How long was I asleep? How long was I asleep? So I just threw him wholesale out. And and where I'm going with this, uh, this multi branching narrative uh, of everything is that a few years ago. I did another big pass on what I would want to do with it in different points. You know, in college, there was a, 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 a lady friend, a special lady friend, you could say, um, who uh, introduced me to a lot of anime, was a very skilled artist herself. Um, she kind of did some character sketches when I decided that I wanted my protagonist to be like a 14, 15 year old girl of multi-mixed ethnic heritage, similar to mine. Um, but perhaps even more mixed than that and a younger autistic brother. I grew up with a younger autistic brother and I've never seen spectrum disorder people portrayed in fiction as anything other than monsters, curiosities, uh, magical solutions to saving the universe, um, or, or really much, much of anything useful other than, you know, genetic garbage, um, to make a really didactic, uh, social point about, um, with the exception of the movie, the wizard, which I, I recently defended on, on unfairly maligned. Cause I think it is unfairly maligned, even by people from within the autism community who think that it's just, you know, shallow and whatever. But if you compare that to rain, man, man, the wizard is, is like a doctoral thesis, uh, on, on autism as compared to rain, man, uh, which was one of my brother's famous uh, favorite, absolute favorite farces. He thought it was hilarious. Did Um, so I started sculpting the narrative around the two of them and then I kind of flagged in my enthusiasm about it and realized that it was because I was lacking a central antagonist. And so I brought back the hero of legend and made him the bad guy. And yeah, he has the same narrative arc of he comes to avenge his father, the king and his entitlement. And he's, he's like Prince Valiant on steroids, um, both physically and mentally regarding his level of entitlement and his, his mandate to lead the people and enforce, um, very, you know, bro friendly, misogynist kinds of backwards ideology and so on. And so then I found myself with a narrative where a teenage girl was literally, literally And I'm not misusing the word literally, literally going to destroy a patriarchy. And then I started thinking, well, maybe I have accidentally ripped this off. This is something that writers go through. Did I rip this off? I probably ripped off part of this. Um, I doubt it. Because I haven't read Game of Thrones or watched Game of Thrones. I recently had to ask a, a female priest female priest friend of mine who has read and watched it. Hey, have they done anything like this oh, or no. like this or like this? And she's like, well, they did something like this. And I said, good. Cause I actually like my backup more because it's, it's more punishing. Um, so where I've been going with this is that in a way that does not interfere with my primary business podcasting and doing the podcasting stuff, uh, and an artist friend of mine of some note, uh, who is a name in the comics industry, at one point I was telling him about another comics project that I was trying to get off the ground with, with some other established creators because that's kind of your way in, uh, is having a brand name of some sort. He said, well, uh, you know, let me, let me draw some pictures for you sometime if you got something you want to talk about. And so we met up and talked for a few, uh, what, what I thought was going to be maybe 30, 40 minutes turned into three or four hours as I laid out the overall expansive nature of this mega narrative that, has, um, you know, a forbidden love subplot for the new version of this elf character that a friend of mine played as 20 years ago when we were in middle school, where it initially presents him as, as a leading character. But if anything, uh, the woman that he is in love with, it flips the kind of, um, the, uh, um, what do you call the, um, the, the long distance longing, romance plot. Mm -hmm. Uh, it flips the genders on it. Uh, so yeah, he's a, he's a warrior and kills people and you know, whatever. And he's feared and and all of that, but, but no, it's, it's, uh, it's really her story, uh, more than his. And he, he is the, um, somewhat less developed, um, object of affection rather than the driver of that subplot of the story. Um, and I, I've built it out such that it's, it's something that could be a very, a very big part of my life, um, and be something very rewarding. And, uh, we're, we're in the, uh, character design stage, um, and then we're jumping right into illustrating, uh, a first, a first comic book issue worth of this thing.
1: That sounds amazing. I don't want to wait for it though.
0: It's the culmination of of exactly all, all of the rage that you incited at the very beginning of the show. Uh where I've I I I've I've shared a lot of things with uh friends inside the comics industry, friends that I've known since middle school or high school, like this uh female priest who has read way more fantasy fiction than I have. Mm-hmm. And and who, of all things, you know, she is she is a a traditionalist. Uh, I hesitate using the word fundamentalist because it has various connotations. You know, she, she's, uh, she's part of a, a traditionalist, you know, church of Christ, uh, you know, kind of, kind of, uh, kind of church Mm -hmm. mindset, but she's also a Star Trek super nerd, uh, you know, has an annual clash of the Titans family costume party, (laughs) you know, with her mom and her dad and her best friend's mom and dad and their, you know, kids and all that kind of stuff. Um. And has read all of this, you know, stuff that, that, you know, yeah, there's, there's some of that trashy romance stuff in there. So what? She's a priest. Okay. Big deal. Who cares? Right. Um, so I've, I've vetted things past her. I've talked to friends that I've, I've been, I've been inspired by a part of their personality, um, that, that have, have added a little bit of additional color or flavor to the personalities of, of characters that I've, I've been, Developing for 20 years. Um, and it's it's kind of charted the course of my... Uh, I, the best way to explain this, uh, w- you know, it sounds like I'm cross-promoting yet another show on my network, um, Unconsolable, but Maddie Myers was just on this week and was talking about how growing up as a girl video game player, she didn't understand that a bunch of things that she was saying and that she was tacitly being a part of were extraordinarily misogynist and anti-feminist and anti-progressive. And it even took until after she was out of college to process various things. And there are definitely uh, romantic relationships that I've been in that looking back on them, I am beyond not proud of the way that I uh, comported myself with regard to like male entitlement in, in those kinds of relationships. Like there's some quarter, some kind of like standard template for what a role, what a, what a romantic relationship is, what a sexual relationship is that I now realized was very deeply formed, uh, not by nature, but by nurture, mm-hmm. by the culture around me that endorsed this overbearingly dominant male persona that you have to be the hero of virtue. You have to be this particular definition of something or you're nothing mm-hmm. And I've seen people that I knew that some I was friends with, some I wasn't friends with, take paths in their life to wrap themselves in a version of that narrative for themselves, where they are the guy who works for the bank and is a vice president Mm -hmm. and does not like his domestic life and is married to someone he does not really care about and who does not really care about him because those are the roles that they are supposed to play.
1: The boxes you're supposed to check.
0: Exactly. And I'm, I'm more excited than anything beyond just doing a creative project or getting something that I've been working on for so long in some respect or another. Um, I'm most excited about the fact that I have literally miscast everybody in ways that will somehow bother somebody. Uh, there will be feminists who will be like, where are all the women? Because in the opening issue, there, there may be two women. And one of them is the main girl and one of them is her, uh, for lack of a better term, Obi-Wan Kenobi mentor kind of character. Um, But there are a lot more women in the second issue. And a lot more women overall than people expect in something that isn't um, fantasy fiction porn, honestly. Uh, Where all the women are naked and, you know, massaging each other in a hot spring. And um, I'm excited. About the notion of putting stuff out there for people that have been literally starving for something that isn't just, you know, romance fiction porn, which in in terms of a lot of fantasy fiction that women are comfortable reading, it's the women's perspective POV, you know, bodice ripping stuff Mm -hmm. that they have to run to because there's really just nothing else. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know if I've if I've wrecked your show or not. I hope that I haven't. And I no. hope that I, I hope I've made a lot of people angry at the very <laughs> least.
1: I'm super excited about this comic. It's
0: um, I didn't tell you anything about it beforehand. And we, we just we came to it organically. And I wasn't intending to talk about it because I've been <laughs> trying to not talk about it because uh, things are crazy running a podcast network and yes. I'm doing enough and there there are people who will be like you're doing what in addition <laughs> to that you're writing this and you're are you go you know what are you doing now going on a lecture tour are you going to disneyland what are you doing um if anything it is it is like the the thing it is my nights and weekends mm-hmm. thing that i'm losing more sleep than i already am uh working on in bits and pieces uh, because the opportunity is there and i i you know i've i've got to push it forward yeah
1: uh, well and it's a per it's the perfect time for it. Um, you know, there's one webcomic I read that's Strong Female Protagonist, and it's basically like this namona uh, well,
0: namona's over, but
1: No, it's actually called Strong Female Protagonist. Um Oh, a strong female protagonist is great. Yeah. It's by um <laughs> Molly Ostertag and Brennan uh uh Brennan Lee Mulligan. Um, and it's about like this this young woman in her late teens or early twenties. I'm I can't remember off the top of my head. And she's a superhero and she gives up the superhero life and wants to lead a normal life. And it's like all about, you know, getting, you know, crises happen and she's got to get back in there to save people. And it's just really it. I have some problems with it, but it's really, really good. And this kind it, of it is
0: in in concept. Uh, we'll see if you agree. I feel like it is a radically better employment of the concept behind that really terrible Uma Thurman movie, My Super Ex-Girlfriend.
1: So I haven't seen that.
0: Well, it's basically a woman <laughs> has superpowers, deals with being a, a woman in modern relationships, um, you know, and she also can fly and throw people through walls. But in that movie, it's employed as, you know, she's a spiteful, crazy bitch who goes on the rampage when this guy breaks up with her, uh, which I I I thought the setup was great. And then it got to the point in the trailer where she was, you know, she was just a crazy ex using her superpowers, beating up this poor defenseless guy. And I was like, well, this is this is not something I would show up for. Yeah, Sorry. that's
1: probably why I didn't watch it. So
0: <laughs> or were even aware. Yeah. of it.
1: I remember hearing about it, but I remember not being impressed enough to watch it. So but yeah, that's it. It sounds like this idea that you have is is like strong female protagonists, but it's like a step beyond that. And I'm really, I'm really excited to read it.
0: It's, um, it's a pretty immersive thing. There's, there's magic and there's dragons and there are elves and there are dwarves. Uh, and I'll say this, um, uh, um, I'm, 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 I've, I'm, I'm, I've been peeling back the curtain too much talking about a thing that doesn't exist yet. And that's something that is very dangerous is. for a writer. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: but, um, I don't know. I, I, I will put it out there for somebody, um, check me and make sure that I'm not quote unquote stealing this from somewhere. I don't think that I am. Um, I've known little people in my life, dwarves. Um, I know that there are a lot of things that they really dislike. Uh, a lot of them have to do with fantasy tropes and little people dwarves in this thing are just little people. They're little people like they are in the real world. They uh their their size has nothing to do with their proficiency in mining, in smithery, in um being thrown by elves, uh any of that crap. Um they're treated like just they're they little people. And yeah, there will be prejudices and things like that to to confront. But I am I am tired of fantasy fiction um patterning itself after 1930s English authors and, and just going off of the things that, um, uh, things that are drawn from an era where prejudice and bigotry and racism are rife. Mm-hmm. Um, elves, there are people with pointed ears who live among us in society who have it surgically corrected because there is actually a gene mutation that can cause you to have pointed tipped ears. And that's what elves are. They're not they're not a different, uh, species or anything like that. And if anything, elves are of various different colors and ethnicities and everything in this world. And they are treated like, uh, like people, uh, people who are of another, um, species by people who are especially prejudiced because people have pointed ears and that's it. Um, you know, like people who uh, make leprechaun jokes and they find out somebody's Irish or try to do a really shitty Irish accent. It just stupid crap like that. Um, but again, it's a world with dragons and magic and uh, all kinds of weird paranormal stuff in it, um, but that that looks at subverting those archetypes and preconceptions in a way that is not just for the sake of subverting them, but for a very specific reason in each case. It, it goes back to, why is this this way in fantasy fiction? Why can't it be this other thing? Oh, and there are airships, and I like airships. Airships are great.
1: Oh, it's going to be awesome. I'm, I'm excited for you. Uh,
0: Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited for this show. You've got all these great guests on it all the (laughs) time. Thank
1: you. Um, we're, we're well over an hour. Is there anything else you wanted to talk about?
0: I, Hey, I've taken up probably uh, way, way more than, than, than the time that you wanted and probably, um, uh, yeah, we're over an hour and I've, I've, uh, I've inflated your show to an unreasonable length.
1: I've enjoyed it.
0: Uh, I'm, uh, well, good. Okay. As long as, as long as you've enjoyed it, I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I'm good.
1: The only, the only thing was that someone on Twitter wanted me to try to get you to sing.
0: Oh, that's, we'll see. That's not hard to do. I mean, we're already <laughs> over time. Um, I will, I will give you, I will give you an advanced preview of something that I've been working on for way too long that Mike Hurley is fully aware that I've been working on. Oh. Um, and, uh, I, I, I wrote, kind of a Weird Al type um, uh, take on Nobody Does It Better when they ended Bionic on 5 by 5 where I I rewrote all the lyrics to it and I got an instrumental-only version of it and I I sent them a recording of it and they tacked it onto their final episode. Um, But I've got, if I can find it, I've been working on a song for Bonanza on the the uh, the wonderful relay FM. I'm promoting his network more than I, know. I am at this point. What's what going I on? I well, look, I maybe I just don't know what I'm doing. Um, I figured that the thing that made the most sense was uh was a take on Skyfall.
1: Okay.
0: The uh, the Adele song. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not, I'm not finding it. This is terrible. See, if, if, uh, if, if they had gone through the, the proper uh, procedure of asking, you know, with plenty of time, I could have probably, <laughs> um, um, actually, actually had the, the lyrics for Trousers Fall.
1: Oh my gosh. Uh,
0: ready. Um, they, they had this whole thing on the show about, um, about, uh, Tearaway Trousers that uh, i just thought was uh, was hilarious and everybody thought was hilarious um but it it uh yeah it there there's there's some there's some musical stuff uh to expect on somebody else's network entirely from me soon in addition to uh, on a recent episode of giant size i uh, there's a comic book called lumberjanes about a group of girl scout types at a girl scout type camp um and uh, i met a couple of the creators a month ago and told them you know if there were a cartoon uh, I think someone asked them in a Q and a, what the theme song would be. And I said, you would just take the gummy bears theme song and change it to lumberjanes and leave basically all of the words, the exact same because it works. Except um, for
1: the part about gummy berry juice. Uh,
0: yeah. Uh, along with the secret of, um, I, I forget what I changed it to, but it worked. <laughs> um, and I may have even just cut the line and it, it worked just fine. Um, but, uh, yeah. I don't know. I'm, I, one of the things that I've, I think I've, I've expressed publicly on, on the podcast air is that I, in all of the infinite free time that I have, I have long wanted to have a TV theme song cover band because okay. I have, I, I look, <laughs> there, there is a certain art to TV theme songs. That's
1: true. This is true. Anybody
0: who, anybody who tells you otherwise, well. I'm sorry, but they don't know what they're talking about. Uh, and my TV theme song cover band after these messages um, would <laughs> do everything from cartoons to ABC's TGIF lineup because um, g- Growing Pains, say what you will about the show. Show me that smile again. Don't waste another minute on your crying. Like it, it immediately jumps into the most passionate Part of a power ballad from <laughs> really the does. arena rock days. Yeah, it's it's kind of it's kind of it's kind of rock and roll, um, by way of soft rock. <laughs> but there's you know there there's 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 some fun and some rhythm to things like Chippendale Rescue Rangers. People don't know that there are extended versions of the theme song, like multiple verses of the Chippendale theme song, of the Ducktales theme Tailspin. song that nobody knows. Tailspin, yep. yeah. There's uh, there's some really. There's some really great stuff. And then there, there are things that actually were, you know, on the music charts as big singles like uh, like I'm Going to Live Forever from Fame. Um, Princes of the Universe from Highlander by Queen of All People. <laughs> what? Um, I, I remember a while back somebody made a, like a web browser game, like an endless runner out of the Perfect Strangers theme song.
1: Oh, Perfect Strangers. That was my favorite show when I was little. Perfect Strangers.
0: Opens with a harmonica, um, has uh, has some really uplifting, inspiring lyrics about a uh a, an amalgamated uh ethnic archetype, um, pastiche going to live with his brother in the big city of Chicago. <laughs> what a show.
1: I loved it. I don't know why, but I did.
0: It was goofy, it was fun. It was goofy. TV used to be fun. Yeah. It wasn't always just procedurals or doctor shows or procedural doctor cop shows.
1: All right. Well, Moises, how can people find you online? Uh,
0: very carefully. <laughs> um, all of my podcasting stuff can be found at esn.fm. That's really the best way to find me. I would say you can follow me on Twitter at Moiseschiu, M-O-I-S-S-E-S-H-I-U. Uh But that's I, I, I don't know how soon I'm actually going to see anything on there because um, a friend of mine a few months ago, told me when I asked him, when did you suddenly get 65,000 followers on Twitter? He said, oh, this uh, buddy of mine thought it would be hilarious to buy me 60,000 followers. Someone is in the process of spiking my Twitter followers. So I can't even open my Twitter app. Like when I open when I open the Twitter app on the desktop, it makes my retina MacBook pro spin completely up. Like the fans go full blast. Like I'm transcoding video. Um, so I, uh, I'm not really seeing much of anything on Twitter at the moment, but, uh, hopefully that will eventually taper off and I can actually use that social network again. They can certainly, uh, follow the network. Uh, it has a Twitter account. I'm actually, uh, one of the things this weekend that I'm, I'm trying to do across the board is get a, get separate Twitter accounts for each of the shows set up. Uh, cause I think there is some value in that even when you've got one network address. Uh, I think that, I think that there's, something cool that you can do with a low volume thing that people who are fans of a particular show mm-hmm. can pay attention to. They can take the place of things like a discussion forum, like, Hey, you know, what kind of a show would you like to see about this? Do you know anybody who is a public school teacher? Cause we're doing a series on public school teachers, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things I'm very, very proud of that's, uh, that's going to be up by the time this goes up. Um, I've got an episode of electric shadow about sailor moon, uh, how it has influenced a generation of creative female professionals who are completely directly influenced by it and the things that they're putting out there that are great and awesome are very much a direct result of actually having something that didn't involve ponies or Barbies on the TV mm-hmm. that gave them agency, gave them a sense of being able to be their own superheroes. Um, and uh, and he- this, this Avengers weekend uh, earlier this week, I recorded bits of an episode of Thank You For Calling, which is finally back from hiatus with, um, have you ever gone to one of those like free movie pass promo screenings? No. You heard of them? You're generally aware that they happen a few days before a movie comes out? No. You know, a radio station will <laughs> give away passes. Oh, like, something like that. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. listen to the hot 98.7. <laughs> We're going to show Under the Tuscan Sun this Tuesday. Get your passes at your local Tom Thumb.
1: I think I think the issue is I don't really listen to the radio, so
0: I I more power to you. I think, <laughs> I think that's smart. I listen well, to
1: podcasts. So
0: the, the press screenings that press like myself get invited to uh regionally are typically also these kinds of radio station or online promo kind of mm-hmm. things. So a whole there is actually a subculture of, of people that some some people will I'll say uncharitably referred to as pass holes who um, go to every single one of these. There are websites that track, you know, when there's going to be one. Doesn't matter what the movie is. It just matters that it is a free movie screening and they will line up starting at two in the morning. Oh, geez. So that they can see a movie that will be out the next weekend for free. And so I talked to some of the people at the front of the line for Avengers Age of Ultron and I talked to uh, a couple of the reps, one of whom uh, has been doing this stuff for 20 years. And I uh, – I, I, th- that's a story that I don't think a lot of people are, are even aware of. Uh, but I think it's, it's interesting looking at the notion of a customer service relationship where – uh, the, the person that is doing the customer service, the customers aren't paying for anything. Mm. There is no financial compensation other than the fact that a movie studio is paying this guy to execute this event properly. But the actual human beings that they're having to deal with, you know, they, they no money has exchanged in any hands except with the
1: movie theaters
0: concession stand.
1: Interesting.
0: But yeah, and uh, upcoming Electric Shadows, one of them with Terry Farrell, who played Jadzia Dax on Deep Space Nine, a oh, cool. show near and dear to both of our hearts. I made her cry in a Q&A, and I, I started to feel bad, and then she told me that she really appreciated working with me and somebody who got it afterward. And uh, the little Julian Bashir inside of me uh, <laughs> wept and died simultaneously. Um, and then I'm I'm following that up with another Trek-themed one. Where I have managed to get my hands on the audio of the last convention Q and A that Leonard Nimoy did, oh. and uh, yeah, I'm uh, I'm a softie for uh, for space people.
1: Well, very cool. Everywhere
0: blathering and and just talking and talking. Just you have to stop me. You have to stop me. I haven't guested on a show in so long. <laughs> I'm giving you way too much show.
1: No, it's good. It's good. And um, well, I'll just tell people where they can find. Uh, less than or equal, which is on Twitter at less than or equal. Um, if you have feedback suggestions for guests or would like to be a guest, uh, please go to less than or and fill out the contact form. If you have a few minutes, I'd really appreciate a review on iTunes or even just a star rating if you don't want to write something.
0: Those make a huge difference yeah. when people see a perfect five star rating or close to a perfect five star rating, or the the useful reviews. Like upvote the ones that are actually good and are are a good recommendation of a particular show. That's that's something that makes a much much bigger difference than people probably expect it does. Yeah,
1: and then the one person who gave me the two star review, if you not even a review, just a two star rating. If you could go just more five stars, I'd really you know. That'd be cool. Yeah,
0: counteract those cowards. (laughs) They're cowards. They're cowards. I'm calling them out. They're cowards. They're worthless and they're terrible.
1: Um, And then the show also has a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Aline, A-L-E-E-N. And thank you so much for listening. Until next time on an internet near you, I'm Aline Sims for Less Than or Equal.